Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know my bro? Me sir. I literally bubbled all of that fast, man. It's a Sunday, Allah. Yeah. It's a Sunday, Allah. Sunday. Literally, one just came from my yard as well. Had a good rice and peas. Tell her that, man. I've got them as well, you know? Sit down. Yeah. Grab that seat, innit? Or grab the other one. Bro, what the fuck is that? It's a freaking recorder, Allah. Man. I was doing a documentary for Vice and Brennan. What? Yeah, my bro, I got one little podcast coming down. From Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture, this is Vent Documentaries. Young people from one London borough telling you the stories we care about. This is series three, where we are talking about justice. What's good? My name's Kez. I'm an artist and creative director. I'm interested in documenting and archiving the experiences of young people from minority backgrounds in the UK. I think a lot about how our experiences are perceived and I'm curious about how art can make other people put themselves in our shoes. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that artists, journalists and historians have a really important role to play in struggles for racial justice. It's important literally just to have a record of black lives. My photos are proof that black people live and thrive in the UK. Documenting our existence is a form of resistance. In 1985, there were serious political upheavals taking place. That's my pop speaking. My friends call me Shamari. Right now we're sitting at my living room table. He looks like an older version of me, basically. He's six foot four, dark skinned, a kind of neatly scruffy salt and pepper beard, and a very Caribbean face. He just looks like my pops, I can't lie. I would describe my dad as a troublemaker. He's always been involved in the community. One thing he's always said to me is, don't let your education get in the way of your learning. And rightly so, he's always been bombarding me with books on black history, activism, and Pan-Africanism from a very young age. When he was around my age, my dad was faced with a political landscape that sounds all too familiar. From 1981, 85, you had serious issues around police brutality. So people looking at all this Black Lives Matter globally around police police brutality. It's not it's nothing new. Mm-hmm. And black people have always been fighting against these these issues. And the major issue that happened in eighty five was um centered around the killing of two black women. Uh, Cherry Gross Cherry Gross was left paralyzed from the waist down. She eventually died from her injuries. The policeman who shot her, Inspector Douglas Lovelock, stood trial for the shooting 
but was acquitted. I'm Cynthia Jarrett. The police claim that Cynthia Jarrett died accidentally during a heated argument as they were searching her home. The family, though, are adamant she was barged into by a detective, which caused her to fall. One of them was killed in Brixton, and one was killed in Tottenham. By the the police? By the police. Cherry Gross was shot by the police in her shoulder, in her home in Brixton, leaving her paralysed from the chest down. She died in 2011 due to complications related to this injury. Cynthia Jarrett collapsed and died during a police raid on her home in Tottenham. Her family claimed that Cynthia was pushed by a police officer. In 2014, a jury inquest found the police failures contributed to the death of Cherry Gross. The police have always denied any responsibility for Cynthia Jarrett's death. But those were the kind of um, police actions that led the community to, to really mobilise politically to put pressure on the government to do something about it. This mobilisation came in the form of mass protests in the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham and in Brixton, otherwise known as the Brixton Riots and the Broadwater Farm Riots. In terms of, um, because I'm assuming at the time, um, the mainstream media wouldn't have covered stories like this. Um, and if, even if they did, I'm assuming that they would not have covered them in a way that was um, really cogent and befitting of, of the actual events that happened. So in terms of like other streams of, not even verbalising, <laughs> but explaining to people that these things are going on and how, how was information passed around? Yeah, I mean, one of the key things that we've always experience, as I said, when they cover these stories, it was always biased and skewed towards the the untruth. Yeah. For instance, they would take down the police version of things verbatim. Yeah. So we've always known that to inform our community of events taking place, you know, socially, culturally even, um, and obviously politically, we have to have our own independent media. So back then, when my pops was about my age, he got involved with one of the independent black newspapers that existed at that time, The Black Voice. Um, I'm currently reading The Black Voice, volume 22, number one. I mean, interesting enough, it has a manifesto. The majority of us live in overcrowded housing conditions, on top of which we are discriminated against. Because we are black brown, this is volume 15, number two. It was sold for 20p. Printed in England, published in the Black Unity and Freedom Party. And the headline of the paper is Free Nelson Mandela Unconditionally. Volume 22, number two. Um, and this copy of youths aged 13, 14 and 15 are all framed for murder following the death of PC Keith Blakelock during the uprising of Broadwater Farm in October 1985. Um, and it's crazy to see the history and the lineage. And to public inquiry into the brutal racist, ra- racist activities of the immigration act in 1971. The repeal of the 1980 my job, um, after a while, was, was as an editor of the newspaper. So I, w- I was responsible for the overall mm-hmm. direction and theme of the newspaper. And I'm assuming that at a time where there's kind of like a collective experience for Black British people at the time, you're seeing things that are going on on the daily, but the newspaper was almost as um, served as a way to bring people together as a collective rather than informed. Information 
does both. It brings people together because people have to come together to write articles, get them edited. Okay, yeah. Then, in fact, I also, one of the things I always loved was actually gathering certain newspapers as well. Mm-hmm. And that was a way of connecting with, talking to people in the community. And even historically, the mainstream or so-called mainstream never covered fairly our cultural, political events. In West London, one of the very early independent black newspapers was started by Claudia Jones, mm-hmm. the West Indian Gazette. Okay. And obviously, in fact, you even go further back than that during abolitionist period. There were black people here fighting and campaigning against the colonial situation. Marcus Garvey obviously was here in London. Yeah. Noble Drew, a Negro World newspaper reached the whole of, it, the, whole of the globe um, in terms of news, independent newspaper and communication. Mm-hmm. There was this internationalist aspect to it. And, and part of that was always independent media. Independent communication media is, is, a, is to me is an integral part of our heritage and our culture. This is the third, fourth newspaper I picked up. One thing I really do appreciate in these these newspapers is there seems to be a lot of feminism, you know, empowering women, feminism and black nationalism, black women organised for revolution. These are just some of the, the, the taglines that I'm seeing on this newspaper. We demand women's struggles. scraping of the commission of the racial equality. There's a section here about Afrocentricism, African conservatism, as it is merely a tool for... I think one of the most amazing things about this paper is the, the illustrations and the photographs are... Definitely will serve as a reference for some of the work and some of the things that I intend. We demand trial by our peers. We demand an end to racist education that is being dis- I mean, it's so crazy because I have so many of these papers. Um, and literally, there's, there's history sitting at my fingers. Literally, history at my fingertips. I feel like being black in Britain, you kind of feel like almost like a sense of loss, like loss of your culture, loss of your identity. There's not really a way to resolve that loss when you're not presented with the fact that you exist in history. That's next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. What's mad about my dad's newspapers is that they don't just matter for sharing information within the black community in the past. They've also become a record of black activism for future generations like me to discover. I hit up my sis Umi Longley to talk more about this idea. I studied race and gender at uni where I kind of dedicated time to looking at the archive. So while back in the day, my pops was frontline using his newspaper to make sure the black community was accurately informed about political events... Umi spends her time thinking about who writes, stores and holds access to black people's history and what this means for us now. She spends a lot of her time in archives. In my opinion, an archive is like a space in which history is written. Literally a place where they store stuff from history. 
documents, photographs, oral histories of the past. Diaries, letters, basically people's stuff from the past that helps build a picture of what life was like when they were alive. Archives are usually stored in big institutions, universities, libraries. I don't know, they seem kind of institutional. It doesn't seem like something you can attain. Like, when I first went into the archive, I was like, didn't even know where to sit. I didn't even want to, like, bring in a pen or water. And they often have certain rules, like you can't bring any of your stuff in in case you, like, damage some of the stuff. So it is kind of put up on this pedestal as this thing that shouldn't be accessible to everyone. Naturally, I think because it's so academic-based, it feels very distant from the majority of people. Mm. What do you think specifically has, has created that distance? I feel like it's largely intentional. I think that distance has been created intentionally to sort of distance black people from their true identity. And it also makes uh, black British people feel like they don't belong here and that they haven't belonged here. But also to distance the UK from having actual real responsibility for thinking about racism. Umu has spent a lot of time uncovering the history of one black British woman in particular, a black panther called Olive Morris. Olive Morris is basically an activist in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and she was like highly involved in the squatters movement. So she's like been featured on top on the front page of like uh, squatters weekly manuals. But she was also key to setting up certain black women's groups in Brixton and in Manchester. So she created the Organisation for Women of African and Asian Descent. I don't know, she just kind of like... <laughs> I guess she was an activist, but I think she was more than that because she kind of just helped people develop their own activism and held people accountable and had a really big impact on her community in that way. She unfortunately, she passed away really young, so she died aged just 27 uh, in 1979. That meant that her life was cut short, but basically through the archive, her legacy has kind of continued and through the people who know her, they've kind of tried to instill her story into British society and they, they've really fought to get that archive made like, and to get that story remembered. This group of Olive Morris's friends collected lots of her stuff after she died and founded the Olive Morris Collection, a physical evidence of her life and her work. This is what Umu's talking about. And they fought hard enough that the Olive Morris Collection is now stored within Lambeth Archives. So you can just go into the library and like sit in Lambeth Archives and ask about the Olive Morris Collection. And so I went to the Lambeth Archives and I was like trying to get to grips with her archive and trying to understand her history. And I thought, oh, I'll ask the archivists, like maybe they got some tips or some information. And I was told by them that they actually didn't know anything about the Olive Morris collection because it was put in there by activists. And I was kind of disappointed because I was like, shit, like, I mean, Olive Morris is here, but she's not recognised by the people who write this history as, you know, actually being here. Like, they don't even know about her. They don't have the question, they don't have answers to the questions I want. So it kind of hurt because it sort of felt like she stands on her own, even though she's in, in Lambeth Archives, she stands on her own in that space. The fact that sometimes this information isn't accessible and also isn't valued as much almost make you feel like you're not valued as much. Um, totally. It's something that like, I'm still trying to get to grips with, like understanding my own self-value. Yeah, it makes it, it kind of makes it feel like if she's an imposter... It, it makes you feel like an imposter. It makes you feel like, actually, maybe I don't fully belong here. Literally, literally. 
as black people, we kind of live life with so many unsung heroes. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a privilege to be able to kind of like have the mentality to go out and be able to kind of like dig up this history about ourselves. Because I think there's like been a lot of conditioning that makes you feel like you don't need to actually know this history. Mm. In reality, it's really empowering. Like I find it really empowering that these kind of like unsung heroes are, were, were alive and are still alive. Yeah, totally. I know I get what you mean because to be black in Britain, I feel like and connect with these stories, it's inevitably like a very emotional and personal journey because of the erasure that we've faced. I feel like being black in Britain, as like we said, because of the distancing that you have to do with racism, you kind of feel like almost like a sense of loss, like loss of your culture, loss of your identity. And you can't really like try to, you know, there's not really a way to resolve that loss when you're not presented with the fact that you exist in history. So I think finding Olive's story and learning about Olive's story really helped me to realise what I already knew, which is basically that I existed, like, and that I existed as a human being, not just as, like, uh, a person who suffered or something, just just to have her normal story told. As I learned more about Olive Morris, as I realised that she did exist within this institutional space, I actually started to feel more comfortable in the space and more capable, I guess, in terms of how I took up space in the archive. So I, I think that we're, we're really so much more connected to these people from the past than we're taught in school or taught in society. 100%. Um, yeah. What was kind of like the the driving force for you to go and um, research into Olive Morris's life what what actually made you get up one day and say you know what I'm going to go and do this because I think mm. as you were saying because of all the conditioning that we've had to endure from being children up until now um, mm. it's not normalised for us to go and actually research about our history no. so what was kind of like the driving force for you to say you know what I'm going to get up and do this it's like basically came out of being in institutions being in academia and constantly hearing this narrative about black suffering and literally feeling like that cannot be all there is because that's not what my experience is of being black it's not just to suffer like sure it's challenging and suffering is legitimate and and uh, powerful but that's not all it is to be black sometimes it just means like getting up in the morning and having breakfast and chatting (laughs) chatting to your family like I just want to know that blackness exists in a human way so it kind of was stemmed out of that and learning to not just be satisfied with the knowledge that we're presented the history that is in an archive formulates how we think of ourselves in the present so they're not just about um you know documenting stuff (laughs) they're about creating feeling and uh creating identity in uh the modern world i asked Umi whether she thinks it's important to try and get white institutions to value black history archives more or if she thinks we should just abandon white institutions altogether I personally think we need to take our experience elsewhere. I just don't believe that we will ever truly fit into white systems which have been designed around white bodies and white histories and white perspectives. Like, that's just not how our history is told. I think it would be more valuable for us to value our own ways of accounting history and create our own archives, I guess, that aren't built or designed around years and years of oppression. Like, it's so difficult to undo. Of course they don't know about Olive Morris because in the Lambeth archives, because that would require them to 
unlearn years of erasure of black stories. Documenting and archiving, for me that, that is almost shocking, is that a lot of the things that you speak about, I've never heard of them. And we're back to my pops again. In, in our cultural tradition, there's always the this, this story keepers. In fact, there's the members in our family um, where they have this phenomenal memory and they memorize and know all the various, like, you know, where we're from in, in mm -hmm. Jamaica. Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And in that town, there's what, in fact, I'm, I'm, in fact, I've decided I need to go speak to him and do what you're doing here, recording. Yeah, yeah. Because he has memory of all the various interconnections mm -hmm. in the family. Uh, and, and the point being that, yes, documentation is absolutely essential. That memory keeping, that can never be lost because some of us will always have that ability certain archives um, and also to make it also accessible to the wider public mm -hmm. but I'm saying there are different layers and different ways to approach that and we've got to some of us be aware of our responsibility my responsibility primarily to be teaching and you know communicating this information yeah. to the wider community some of us it's going to be to as you said archive and document and keep that ancestral memory alive they're going to be individuals who imbibe that memory. He's just busy. I miss your face. I miss your face. Why do you even miss yeah. my face? You never saw my face. You saw my face in passing. I could never pick this guy down. <laughs> <laughs> That's artist Keith Piper. Um a faculty member at Middlesex University <laughs> where um, Kes is an outstanding student. Uh, you know I had to leave that in there. <laughs> Keith looks like a sort of version of my dad, basically. No hair, same beard. He's always in a leather jacket and he kind of looks like a new age Black Panther. Can't lie. Keith's like a chameleon. He literally just comes out of nowhere and tells you you need to meet in a lecture. He's an amazing artist, mentor and lecturer and he's always had my back during my university course. He's also the only person of colour teaching me on my course. Naturally, there's a certain level of comfort being able to speak to him about things like this. I mean, Keith's Keith, man. My name's Alfie White. I'm a documentary photographer from South East London. That's my boy and he's currently on the Days 100, you know? He's literally the same age as me and I met him in a photography workshop in Brixton. My friends call me Mellow, but this guy is so laid back, like he's actually the real Mellow. He's the most humble and calm guy I've ever met. He's the reason why I jumped on this whole photography wave and he coached me into the whole process. And more time I was so nervous that I jumped into this, buying the exact same camera as he did. I really respect Keith and Alfie. I wanted to talk to them about how we as artists can help document and record social justice movements. My generation, your generation, I, I feel like we naturally nowadays associate activism with art in a lot of ways. You know, with its music or art itself or spoken word, any of it, photography and activism for me is just very like intertwined and I wouldn't, it wouldn't feel right to specifically focus now on one of those terms, if that makes sense, or like definitions. There is a term, there is activism, you know, political work, engagement, etc. And there's art making 
or engaging in kind of cultural practices. But there is the term which is cultural activist, you know, and people will describe themselves as cultural activists. That can cut for a whole range of things. But in essence, it's people who are interested in using the tools of art making, like documentary photography or filmmaking or whatever, as a tool within political action. Or it could be artists who are using art making as a way of exploring and discussing um, political issues. Keith says, as documentary photographers, we are preserving moments in history. But in a sense, there is this, this whole realm of image making where its power lies in the fact that it's um, linked to an actual moment, to something which actually happened. When you point your camera, you know, that actually happened. And the power of that is that this was an event in history. All the things that you have, like even in your phone, like all the photos you have of your life and the, the notes you take, the trinkets you keep and you save from when you were a kid, like that's your own living archive. Umi Longley. And that doesn't have to go into an institutional space to be legitimate. Like we all have the power basically to record our own histories and make ourselves people who are memorable. And we don't need to turn to traditional archives for approval in that. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, I, think, I think it's really interesting because it makes these things a bit more attainable. I was speaking to my dad um, this morning as well, and he was basically saying that one of the main reasons why the Black Voice came into being was because there was a need to kind of like reclaim the way the, the narrative um, was being pushed around, um, you know, mm. political things that were happening at the time. He mm. was basically saying that in terms of sovereignty, that was what they were looking for, being able to control what what is told to um, his community. Mm-hmm. My Instagram feed, I would say, is almost an archive of kind of like what I've seen <laughs> in the last couple of months. Naturally, so there's so many people, other people like that. Mm-hmm. I feel like, particularly in terms of Black Lives Matter, when we have all this kind of like sudden surge in white support that's basically temporary (laughs) I don't know I feel like the price of white support is often black suffering like people only really rally around when black people are dying but actually like I think it's important for black people to remember that our experience will still be important like and legitimate even once people stop noticing it the present is so temporary and what we're experiencing now like with this surge in support from white people is is temporary um, so I think we need to put things in place now to make sure things are different in the future. There are many, many ways of responding to a moment. Keith Piper. You know, which are not necessarily, you know, about the kind of straight documentation of things. It could be about, you know, some kind of abstract reflection on something a while later, it could be a poetic reflection on things. We can't prescribe what artists' responses to a moment are going to be. And so in a sense, I think it's the breadth, and I'm someone who always argues that all cultural practice is political because all of it exists somehow in relationship to the moment. Uh, it, it, it speaks to the subconscious that we can't like sometimes you look at something, a painting, or, or listen to a piece of music, and it, it, you, you feel a feeling, and it's that feeling that has the the ability to put 
put someone else in your shoes or allow empathy and, and subjectivity to, to play roles and, and break down these barriers. In terms of art in relation to activism, do you, do you remember any artists back in the day that you think um, were working towards that or any artists now that you, you think are working towards that? A me one. The walk this line <laughs> with a little butter pan. Then not not understand. <laughs> Ring the bell down there. What's what's that? Um, Ring the bell for justice. What's that? Mutabaruka. Ring the bell for freedom. Oh, it's, it's powerful. Mutabaruka is is one of the most powerful poets and mm. artists mm. out there. Mm. To answer your question about artists who's who ties in their art to their activism. Mm-hmm. Mutabaruka is one of I've always been one of my favourite. And, and, and the second and the second this guy ring the bell for justice is another artist called Brother Resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ring the bell for justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ring the bell for freedom. Art is meant to be used to uplift the psyche, the spirit of every individual on the planet. Yeah, that's right. So we, we, we've got to stand firm and do what's necessary. Stand toddy. Stand taliwa. Stand tan toddy. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Vent Documentaries. I am Kez. Vent Documentaries are produced by Jess Lawson and Ali Adlington with help from Amelia Gill, Moeed Majid and Kamaya Shea. Our music is from WMP Studios. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.